0: Turn with me, please, to Matthew chapter 8. Last week, uh, Jason Beals took us through Psalm 46, uh, talking all about, appropriately, the strength, the power, and the security that God's people find in who He is. We went through uh, the protection of God, the presence of God, and the power of God, and we saw that the psalmist in that context basically takes pictures of what is coming in the end and uses that to remind his readers and his listeners about the power of God. Uh, in the end, God is going to shake the earth as he never has before. Uh, and although this picture of destruction comes, mountains falling into the sea, nations raging, wars ceasing, uh, although all of these things are something that we still look toward as far as an ultimate outworking, uh, the psalmist really argues from the greater to the lesser. If God holds and guards and guides and protects and sustains his people in the midst of the worst shaking, the worst the uncertainty, the most turmoil that the world has ever seen and ever will see, then is he not able to handle whatever today might bring? And the answer is, of course he is. And so God's people worship him in the midst of uncertainty, in the midst of trial, in the midst of pain, because we know who our God is. We know that he is our ever-present, always available, abundantly available help in time of trouble. We know that he has the power and the authority to do exactly what he will in any and every circumstance. And how appropriate is that as we come back to Matthew's gospel? We are in in the middle of a section that deals almost exclusively with the authority of Jesus Christ. Matthew 5 through 7, Sermon on the Mount. This is the authority of the king as he teaches. And now as we've come into Matthew 8 and Matthew 9, we see the authority of the king as he interacts with his creation. He has authority over physical diseases. He heals the leper. He heals the centurion's servant. He heals Peter's mother-in-law. Two weeks ago, we saw that he has authority over the natural realm as well. He calms the storm with nothing but a word. And that leaves his disciples saying, what kind of a man is this? What kind of person did we get on the boat to follow? And today, what we're going to see is that Jesus Christ is the king with the authority over the spiritual realm as well. Matthew chapter 8, beginning in verse 28, and going all the way through the end of the chapter is going to be our text for today. I'm going to read that for us. Matthew 8, verse 28. This is what God's Word says. And He came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes. And two demon-possessed men met Him, coming out of the tombs so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. And they came out and went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. And the herdsmen fled. And going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him... They begged him to leave their region. Let's pray. Lord, we have the privilege once again of seeing you interact with your creation through your word. To see the power of Christ demonstrated over the spiritual forces of darkness and the ability to completely undo that. Lord, in light of that, I pray that you would help us to see clearly, to open our eyes so that we might behold wonderful things from your word. And then, Lord, will you convict us? Will you drive us to repentance and then on to obedience Give us strength through your Spirit to walk in a manner that's worthy of our calling. God, we need your help to do this. We are easily blinded. We're easily ensnared and enslaved by sin. God, we ask that you would help us today. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, we are coming up to a particular time of year and season where people, for some reason, enjoy scaring and being scared. And the wisdom of all of that is an entirely different servant altogether. But I will tell you that I am not the type of person who seeks out being scared. Um, I, I look tough, and if my kids are watching, I am tough, Um <laughs> But uh, things impress upon me easily, and they always have. When I was a very, very little guy, uh, my favorite movie of all time was Dumbo, the cartoon Disney version, Dumbo. Um, And I could watch that tape all the way through, and then you hit the rewind button, and you wait two minutes, and you start it again. And for those of you who are sitting next to a millennial or younger, You can explain to them what the rewind button was at your convenience, not right now. Um, But there was a particular scene in Dumbo that I would fast forward through or maybe not look at at all. And if you've seen the Disney version of Dumbo, you know what I'm talking about. It's that pink elephant scene. And it's terrifying. And it's unsettling. And it's a tipsy baby elephant and random, very odd bubble creatures. Um... But, as it turns out, as a 40-year-old man, that scene no longer bothers me and impacts me the way that it once did. Why? Well, because over time, I got desensitized to it. You see it enough, and you know that the pink elephants aren't, in fact, coming for you, and after a time, it gets less scary. And we talk about that in our society. What we expose ourselves to, what we see uh, through the graphic nature of television and movies and video games and all that, we talk about that it can have a desensitizing impact on us. Well, uh, the fact is that that happens in a lot of areas, that we can become calloused and no longer sensitive to certain things, whether that be to the pain and suffering around us, whether that be to the reality of death, or whether that be to the reality of spiritual powers of darkness that are difficult for us to think through and comprehend. See, we're going to come to a passage today uh, that we, many of us know, we've heard, we've read, but it's a terrifying scene that gets laid out for us. This is a clear picture of what happens when demonic spiritual evil oppresses a human life. And it is graphic, and it is violent, and it is shocking. And in the midst of that, we see the power of Jesus Christ. This is a story of power. This is a picture of power. The power of darkness, and then overwhelmingly, uh, the power of Christ. And we're going to open it up into two sections. First, we are going to look at the oppression the darkness that these men lived under and then we're going to look at the authority of Christ but let's open this up and look at the oppression and the first thing that we're going to consider is the place where we're at That's where Matthew opens in verse 28. And because we're separated by time and by geography, it's hard for us to kind of put together. So let's get an understanding of where we are. Matthew 8, verse 28. And when he came to the other side, that is the other side of the Sea of Galilee, they were in or near Capernaum and they were going across the sea. That is when they had that dreadful night and that terrible storm. But now that storm has been calmed with a word from Christ and they come to the other side. And Matthew tells us that that is to the country of the Gadarenes. And we got to stop there for a moment, because if you read through Mark's gospel and you read through Luke's gospel, they tell the same story. But they use a different word for the location. Mark says, uh, the Gerasenes, and now nobody cares about that until someone comes up to you and says, well, why do your gospels say it happened in two different places? See, your Bible contradicts itself. And although there are relatively basic answers for that, it can be very unsettling. Uh, So why do they use two different places? Well, as it turns out, if you do a little bit of digging in the region, uh, this is in a place called the Decapolis, the Ten Cities. It's a largely Gentile region. They're on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And there, uh, there's a small fishing village on the shore called Gerasa. And that's where Mark gets garrisons. Now, like most villages, it was very small. This is not a town. This is not a city. This is a village. Several families, maybe a few hundred people at most. Now there's a larger town a little bit inland called Gadara, and that's where Matthew gets the country of the Gadarenes because it looks like the larger town kind of gave its name to the whole region, and guess what? We still do this. I am from Santa Clarita, except that I'm not really, because if anybody lives in Santa Clarita and knows that area, I would never say that I was from Santa Clarita. I would say that I lived in Canyon Country, a very particular part of that. But that would mean nothing to most people who weren't familiar with the area. So we use Santa Clarita as a term for kind of encompassing all of those smaller areas within it. We still do this. So Matthew gives the larger, broader distinction for this, the local center there. And he says that that is where they have come to. And those distinctions, don't don't let them make you nervous. The fact that our gospel accounts have different highlights, different emphases, is actually an indication of their genuineness, not of their conflict. Uh, Because if this was all nicely pressed together hundreds of years later, Uh, They would have smoothed those things out. It actually speaks to the authenticity of what we have in God's written word. So uh, remember, the disciples have come to this area. Their question ringing in their mind is, what kind of man is this who's gotten on the boat with us? I would imagine it was a very quiet boat ride after that storm as they sat there pondering exactly who it was. And as they go to this area, they know that it's not a large city. It's not a major center. And maybe with the pressing of the crowds that kind of drove them into the boats in the first place, maybe they're thinking this is a time of rest and refreshment. Maybe this is a time to get away from ministry, to take it easy for a couple of days. Uh, But rest was not right. Christ had come because as they come to the shore, immediately they are confronted with a display of power, the power of the demonic forces there. When they came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs so fierce that no one could pass that way. Living among those tombs are these two men that are possessed by demons. Now again, you read Mark's Gospel and you read Luke's Gospel and they mention one man. Well, why is that? because it appears that Jesus interacted primarily with one man. One man was perhaps more oppressed. One man was perhaps just the focal point of the story. Neither Mark nor Luke say there was only one man. They simply mention one man. So again, it's not a conflict. It is simply a different emphasis. But these men are suffering under the spiritual powers of darkness and the oppression of the demons. And Matthew says that they live out among the tombs. They live among the dead. And that was not any better then than it is now. Uh, these men lived in a place that was uh, an outcast it was a place of death and decay and estrangement it was cut off it would have been absolutely abhorrent for anyone who was a jew to think of living among dead things you would have constantly been uh, considered unclean now it's very unlikely that these men were jewish but there were jewish influences at least in the area but to those that are coming across the boat with jesus uh, to have someone coming out of the tombs would have been an unpleasant and unthinkable thing I want you to do something for me. I want you to turn over to Mark chapter 5. We're going to look a little bit at Mark's uh, gospel here because Matthew says that they were so fierce that no one could pass that way. Now Mark's gospel gives us the same account and kind of highlights a little bit some of that ferocity and what that looked like. And it begins in Mark 5, 1. They come to the other side of the sea and when Jesus steps off the boat immediately, there met him a man with an unclean spirit. And verse 3 says he lived among the tombs. But look at what the rest of Mark 5, three says. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and broke the shackles in pieces, and no one had the strength to subdue him. The towns surrounding him, the people, uh, they had no cure for this. Their only hope was to be able to bind him, to somehow control this man or these men. But they couldn't do it. With an unnatural and inhuman strength, they were able to rip apart even the chains that he used but it gets worse Look what it says in verse 5 night and day among the tombs and on the mountains he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones Day after day, night after night, you would hear the howls and the screams of this madman as it echoed off the hills and the tombs. What a terrifying thing that would have been. This is not a children's story. This is not a nice coloring page uh, out of our Sunday school curriculum. This is a nightmare. Can you imagine living in that town and resting in your home at night when the darkness is pierced by the screams of a demonically empowered man who you know that chains cannot even bind? And not only that, you have the visual picture of a man who who is cutting himself with stones, who in this living hell that he's in is actually destroying the body that God has given him. He's becoming, as it were, a picture of unhumanness. It is removing the dignity that is there, that is present in all men by being made in the image of God. And if we were to read Luke's Gospel, don't turn there, but Luke adds to this whole picture that the man was naked, shamefully exposed to the terrified eyes of anybody that got close enough to see him. So you have this naked, deranged, howling madman running between the tombs, attacking people who would pass by on the road, bits of chain dangling from his wrists where they had tried to bind him before, flesh bleeding and scarred from where he had ruined it with jagged rocks. That is what meets Jesus when they get off the boat. So it's no wonder, you can go back to Matthew 8, it's no wonder that he says that no one could pass that way. Demonic power that's essentially destroyed the lives of these two men. And now, as Jesus and his men get off the boat, this is what rushes down to meet them at the shore. And as he does, Jesus begins to interact directly with the demons that are oppressing those men. Look at verse 29, and we're going to see their plea, what the demons ask. Verse 29, And behold, they, that is the demons, cry out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? So Jesus is going to interact directly with the demonic forces, and it's going to be helpful for us, I think, to take just a minute to understand some things about demons, because, uh, again, especially at this time, but really in our culture in general, I think we tend to get more informed by movies and books and pop culture than we do about God's Word, about what these spiritual forces are and are not. Uh, first of all, what are demons not? Well, first of all, demons are not the spirits of dead men, okay? Uh, Bad men don't die and become demons or ghosts or haunting spirits. And conversely, on the other side, uh, when good people die, they do not become angels. Angels, spiritual beings, are a created class of being that God brought into existence. More on that in a minute. What else? Uh, demons are not just a force. They're not just uh, a way of describing the force of evil. They are uh, individual intellectual beings. They understand certain things. They know certain things. Once again, something that we'll get to in a minute. What else are demons not? Well, they're not limited to the time of Christ. This is not just the way a primitive ancient Near Eastern people described uh, mental instability or mental illness. That is not what this is. They knew the difference between physical illness and demonic oppression. Now, those things could absolutely overlap, and sometimes they did. But they did not simply describe all things as spiritual. In fact, uh, 1 Peter 5 says that our adversary, the devil, continues to prowl about like a roaring lion. The book of Revelation makes it very clear that Satan and the demonic forces are going to interact and impact humanity until the very end when God brings his final judgment. So they are not simply limited to then. And in light of that, the fourth thing, they are not to be taken lightly. Uh, they are not something that we can just joke about, that we can assume that we have all power and authority over by virtue of being good people or nice people or even Christian people. Demons have some significant interactions with people throughout the New Testament. Second uh, Peter and Jude are largely dedicated toward false teaching and correcting that. But one of the characteristics that 2 Peter and Jude both mention about false teachers is that they take lightly angelic majesties. They revile angelic majesties. They talk about demons and angels in a way that shows that they don't understand the power that that kind of realm has. But as powerful as they are, the last thing, demons are not God. They are not on an equal plane with God. Demons are not omni-anything. They are not all present they are not all knowing they are not all powerful they are different from us they are stronger they are infinitely uh more conniving they are older they are more knowledgeable uh, in many ways by virtue of that experience but they are not god so what are they well they are spirits now it is true that demons can manipulate physical things Uh, men and pigs in our passage today uh, but they can uh, take on the traits that allow them to impact and control physical objects however they are spiritual beings second they are created beings colossians 1 15 and 16 says this he that is jesus is the image of the invisible god the firstborn of all creation for by him all things were created both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Understand that all things include spiritual forces. And not only were they created through him or by him, they were created for him, which means that both angels and demons exist at the will of God and for the pleasure and the outworking of God's plan. Now, go back to Matthew chapter 8, and we're going to see in verse 29 some other things that demons are. Verse 29 they cry out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Demons are aware of who Jesus is. That is significant that they cry out, What do you have to do with us, Son of God? What were the men saying the night before? What kind of man is this that we got on the boat with? Who is this? What kind of power has been displayed here? They have no way to characterize it. They have no way to categorize it. They have no way to accurately describe the power or the person that they have seen. And immediately as they get off the boat, they are confronted with the answer from a most unlikely source. You realize the demons answer that question. What kind of man is this? He's the son of God. Now, you read through Matthew's Gospel, and he is a very astute writer in what he does. In Matthew, he says, uh, we get the picture of Jesus coming up out of the water from his baptism, and the voice from heaven, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. God the Father declares that this is the Son. In Matthew chapter 4, Satan tempts and says, if you are the Son, although he knows very truly that he is, if you are the Son, and now we have the demons reflect that, Son of God. How many men up to this point in Matthew's Gospel have acknowledged that Jesus is the Son of God? The answer is none. Not one. But the demons speak clearly about who God is. Jesus did not get off the boat with a name tag. Hi, my name is Son of God. He did not get off the boat with a herald saying, there here cometh the Son of God. Jesus steps off the boat and the demons recognize immediately who He is uh, as they have seen Him before. Secondly, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Not only do they know who He is, but the demons are aware of Christ's power. They recognize that Jesus has the ability to torment them, that He has the ability to limit them, to imprison them, to undo them completely. If you read through the Gospel account in Mark and in Luke, both of those Gospel accounts say that as they rush down from the hills, they bow or they fall at the feet of Jesus. And it is stunning that what the men of those cities could not accomplish with binding chains, Jesus accomplishes simply by showing up in the virtue of his nature. They are brought immediately to their knees in the presence of the king. So whatever this thing is that got a hold of this man, it doesn't dare stand in the presence of Christ. And just like they can't stand in His presence here on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, they know that they won't stand in His presence at the judgment. They know that their end is torment. Have you come to torment us? They know that that is within the scope of His power. And not only is it in the scope of His power, they know that it's in the scope of His plan. They know that it's coming. Have you come to torment us before the time? They recognize that their end is torment and that there is an appointed time set aside for that to happen. In other words, the demons have better eschatology than most of American evangelical Christianity, sadly. They understand that this one is the judge and that there is a coming day set aside when he will judge all things, even the powers of the spiritual realm. And they say, this isn't it. This isn't the time. Have you come to do something that we know you're going to do, but it's early? Not yet. And so they make their plea to him. Don't torment us before the appointed time. In verse 30, Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And so the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. Not if you can cast us out. There was no question as to his ability. But if that is your will, if you are going to cast us out, then please let us come down into this herd of pigs. We've got to be very careful about being dogmatic as to why they ask that. Was it because they needed to possess some kind of physical form if they were going to remain on the earth? Uh, maybe, although certainly in places like Daniel, we see that spiritual forces contend against one another without the presence of a physical body. Uh, so we've got to be careful. But whatever it is, suffice, suffice it to say, the demons understood the power of Christ, the identity of Christ, the judgment of Christ, and the absolute certainty of their coming torment. And ultimately, their plea is that that judgment be delayed for a little while. Uh, we know what you can do, we know what you will do. For now, will you allow us to do something else? So the first part of this passage today largely focuses on that oppression. We see the power and the influence of the demon in the lives of those men. We see the understanding that they have of who Jesus is. We see them plead not to enter into judgment with them at this time. And from there, the narrative shifts from the power of the oppression onto the power and the authority of Jesus Christ because demons are powerful enemies they are real they are active they are fearsome beings and yet in the face of that we have a clear picture of what jesus christ is and what he is able to do And the question becomes, how are the demons going to respond to that authority? How are the people going to respond to that authority? Ultimately, the only question that matters is, how do we respond to that authority? But let's look through the last part of our passage today that does, in fact, focus on those responses. And the first response that we see is the response of the demons. They beg him, saying, let us go into the pigs, in verse 32. And he said to them, go. And it is fascinating that Jesus does not have to come through with this whole litany, this whole liturgy of how to cast out a demon, this complicated speech that He has to get just right to get their attention, to get them out. It is the simplest form of the simplest command that we can think of. Go! And they are absolutely compelled in an instant to do it. They have no option other than to obey what Christ says. You read through Mark's Gospel and one of the men is asked, What is your name? And the demon responds, Legion, for we are many. But it did not matter whether it was one demon, a hundred demons, or the entire host of hell. With a word, Jesus has the absolute authority to send them wherever He wishes. Go. And they go. So they come out and they go into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. Now, again... uh, especially to our Western, modern, technological way of thinking. We have a hard time reconciling how demons could possess animals. Unless you own a cat, then you're open to this. And I've got one if you need one. But according to this verse, that is exactly what happens. And the question comes up is, why? Wouldn't it have been better for Jesus just to imprison them at this time? Wouldn't it have been better just for Jesus to do away with them so that in an instant they were gone? Well, two things. First of all, Christ absolutely could have done that. The demons recognized His ability to do that. Second, Peter and Jude, as they talk about uh, the spirits, they talk about spirits that are currently imprisoned, waiting bound in chains and depths of darkness. So God has already permanently bound some of the demonic host. We can't exhaust the wise now, but they've seen his ability to do this. So God absolutely has the ability to do this. Christ absolutely has the ability to do away with them once and for all immediately. So it's not a question of ability. Then that means second, it is a question of his will. Christ did exactly as he willed. He wasn't compelled by their argument. Well, good thinking, guys. I guess i got to send you into the pigs. Pretty smart. No. Whether they were in the man, in the pigs, or roaming free on the earth, they were absolutely and continually bound by the will of God. And by the way, that is not a new concept. You see it continually through the Scriptures, even including Satan himself. What does Satan say when he comes to the, jo- to the book of Job? You guys remember? What about Job? And God says, you can come this far and no further that he says you can go this far and no further and when the trial is over he says it's done that's it whether it's peter whether it's paul in the new testament whether it's anybody god absolutely limits the impact and the power of the forces of darkness so what was the plan and purpose of god uh, we know very little i mean seeing the, those pigs be overtaken by those demons would have absolutely proved that they were no longer in the men, would it not? It would have been a powerful picture that these men were free and that they had, in fact, gone somewhere else. The fact that they rushed down into the water and that 2,000 pigs are drowned uh, would have been a powerful picture of the destruction, uh, the devastating nature, the evil that was present in those demonic forces. Perhaps when those pigs died, they were immediately brought into the darkness and the chains and the binding. We don't know that. So once again, we have to be careful, but we do know dogmatically that whatever the reason, God accomplished His sovereign purpose in that moment. That no matter where they were, they functioned not of their own will, but absolutely under the authority and the will of Christ. And the next response that we see is that of the crowd. And first, we see the herdsmen that are responsible for the pigs. Verse 33, the herdsmen fled and going into the city, they told everything. Yeah, I can imagine that they would. If you just watched 2000 demon possessed pigs run headlong down a hill and into the foaming sea below them, you would want to tell that we have to Instagram what we had for breakfast. I'm pretty sure this would have made the local news, but you notice that that is not the focus of their story. It is very interesting. That is what would have been most outwardly remarkable. But what does he say at the other, in the rest of verse uh, 33? The herdsmen fled, going into the city. They told everything, especially, or highlighted, including and also what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Because what had happened to the pigs was remarkable, but it actually wasn't nearly as dramatic as the change that had happened to those men. They had been wild men running naked, screaming among the tombs, threatening violence on anyone that might have passed that way. But with a word from Jesus, all of that was absolutely overturned and undone. Because you know what people saw when they saw those men? Mark 5.15 actually tells us. They, that is this crowd, comes to Jesus and they saw the demon-possessed man. The one who had had the legion sitting there clothed and in his right mind and they were afraid the wild man is under control and in his right mind the naked was clothed and i'm not going to make a major detour here i I like rabbit trails but we can't go too far down this one but i want you to understand uh, there are a number of videos out there from a number of so-called churches that uh, purport to show what happens when the holy spirit comes upon people And often we see very strange things. Screaming, weeping uncontrollably, yelling, uh, barking like dogs, laughing hysterically. And all of this is supposedly done to show the power of the Spirit when it comes on the life of a person. Uh, Do you know what it looks like when the power of the Spirit comes on a life? It's this. From madness to clothed and in his right mind. The fruit of the Spirit is what? What? love joy peace patience kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness and self-control you read through 1 corinthians 14 and this is not an argument about the presence of the spirit or the power of the gifts or any of that because even at the end of first corinthians 14 that extended gifts passage it talks about god being a god of order not chaos uh, guys the, the spirit brings sobriety where there was madness before so don't get sidetracked and don't get confused. Let the Word of God give us some discernment in those things, and we're back. So, thank you for indulging me. But as the madman from the hills is gone, the one who threatened violence is absolutely done away with. It is fascinating what the crowd says. Behold, Matthew eight thirty four. all of the city came out to meet Jesus. They see that man. They're terrified. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region can you imagine that not a thank you not a what an amazing display of power not how did you do that what can you teach us what else could you possibly free us from how else can you bring peace and security to our region it's you need to leave now the demons begged to go into the pigs and now the crowds begged jesus to go anywhere but here See, they'd rather have the madmen that they knew than the Messiah that they could not comprehend because the only thing more terrifying than two men with thousands of demons is one man with the power over all of them. And they ask him to leave. They beg him to leave. And I want to close with something that's not in Matthew's Gospel. Hopefully you still have a finger over in Mark. Turn back to Mark chapter 5 once again. Because there's another response that I think we need to go through. And it's the response of the ones that Jesus set to free. Remember, Mark highlights one man. We know from Matthew that there were at least two, uh, but whatever the specifics here, at least one of the men has a very particular response. In Mark 5:17, the crowds begged Jesus to depart from their region. And I look at Mark 5:18. As he, that is Jesus, was getting in the boat, and can you imagine being the disciples for just a moment? The night that they had, no sleep. They come, a madman rushes down to the shore to meet them. 2,000 pigs have run down the hill, the crowd has come, and now they've asked you to leave, and your sandals aren't even wet, and you're Our sandals aren't even dry, and you're getting back on the boat already. It would have been a, quite the thing for them to get their minds around. But in all of that, they began to beg Jesus to depart, and as he was getting on the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. That man that Jesus set free now does some begging of his own. It's interesting how much pleading goes on in this chapter. Uh, the demons beg to leave. The crowds beg Jesus to leave. And now this man begs Jesus, let me go with you. He knows who had set him free. He knows the power of this one. He knows that he has authority. and He knows that he is worthy of following. And so he begs Jesus, let me come with you. He had an experience with the power of Christ that many of those in the boat didn't even have firsthand understanding of. And the response of Christ might be somewhat surprising to us because look at what He says. Verse 19, And He, again, that is Jesus, did not permit Him. Jesus says no. Why? All he wants to do is be with you, Jesus. I mean, those other guys said we'll follow you anywhere. This guy certainly understands. This is certainly a transformed follower of Christ. And surely there had to be room in the boat for one more guy. This is not an exclusive club for these 12 or these 70 or this crowd or these Jews. Uh, There has to be more for this guy. Why? Look at what he tells him. You can't come, but instead go home to your friends. And tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. This is the first time in Matthew's gospel in the narrative. I know this isn't in Matthew, but it's in Mark. This is the first time you see Jesus actively sending someone. He's told the disciples, I will make you fishers of men, but he hasn't sent them yet. He has told his people in 5 through 7 to be salt and light, but he hasn't told them exactly when and where to go. The, the, The 12 haven't been sent out. The 70 haven't been sent out. In fact, he's told the leper in Matthew not to tell anyone who he is, but not this man. This man, he says, go. Go back to your city. Go back to your people and tell them what the Lord has freed you from. What a powerful testimony that would have been from naked, bleeding, chains to absolute freedom. Can you imagine the story that that man could tell? I was under bondage and oppression, not physical oppression, because nobody could even contain me. Look at the scars on my skin from where I was. But let me tell you about the one who set me free. And another mark that this man was genuinely saved, genuinely changed, was that he immediately obeys. He doesn't whine. He doesn't complain. He doesn't say that's not fair. He doesn't say that's not what I signed up for. Verse 20, And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. He did what disciples do, and that is he obeyed the Master, and the people marveled at his story. This is a fascinating passage where we see healing and hardening both take place absolute power and authority of Jesus over the forces of spiritual darkness. Uh, And again, we have to recognize this in its context. This is Jesus demonstrating his authority to repeal, to undo the effects of the curse. If he is the king, then he has the power and the ability to proclaim and to bring in his kingdom. And if that kingdom is what it has been consistently promised to be from Old Testament into new, then it is a kingdom where peace and goodness and righteousness and perfection exist. And if that is the case, then this king has to be able to undo anything that would threaten the perfection of that kingdom. He must be the one to deal with sin so that he can be the one to remove the physical effects of the fall like in his healing. He must be the one to be able to repeal the physical effects of the fall in the created order of itself like the storms that he calmed. But this kingdom cannot also remain under threat from the spiritual powers of darkness. From the beginning when man was in the garden, Satan set himself against God and against the pinnacle of his creation. And that animosity and that enmity has not ceased from then until the end. But if there is to be a kingdom that is truly the kingdom that was promised, then that threat must be done away with. This passage shows that he has the authority to do it with a word. That with a word, Christ can and will do away with the spiritual forces of darkness that threaten his people. And in the face of that power, we see this almost inexplicable hardening. A town full of people who would rather Jesus be anywhere but among them. And they beg for the light of the world to depart from their shores. But in his kindness, he leaves a witness. It was a witness they didn't want. It was a witness they didn't ask for. But it was a witness who would obey the will of God and who would then go proclaim the light of Christ to a dark and dying area. Why? Why? because god is holy and he will judge whether it be the spiritual forces of evil or the wickedness of men who stand against the savior god will judge but in his grace and his mercy the lord of all saves sinners a few things for us to think about first of all we need to be those who know our enemy see we read from ephesians 6 to start we don't wrestle against flesh and blood but we live in a time where it's becoming very difficult to make that distinction and in fact, as we look publicly at the witness of the church, sometimes we have to be honest and say that we're not very good at identifying who the enemy is because often we say that the enemy is the one who doesn't think like me, who doesn't look like me. Uh, in this season specifically, the enemy is the one who doesn't vote like me, who doesn't go to this expression of the local body of Christ like me. No. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. See, if our enemy was flesh and blood, we would fight the battle in a flesh and blood way. We would, we would uh, have people switch. We would tell people to convert at the edge of the sword because that's all that matters. We would try to win their hearts in the political arena or the academic arena because that would be what mattered. But in fact, that is not what we're called to do. I am not called to convince anyone or to convict anyone or to compel anyone to come to my side of the aisle, the platform. Uh, No, we're called to win people to Christ, to proclaim the gospel that changes lives. And to do that requires that we put on the whole armor of God, which is a very different way to fight than many of us are used to. Second, we need to be people who know our king because sometimes talking about spiritual enemies uh, can be a little daunting we tend again to live in a place in a time where we either ignore the demonic and the spiritual realm completely or we find it in everything and the reality is somewhere between those two that those forces are real but that they are not responsible for every evil that we see but when we understand that we do fight against a fearsome foe it might unnerve us a bit So it's important to know our king. He's the one that commands demons with a word. He's the one who's going to crush the head of the serpent that will ultimately cast him into the lake of fire. And if he can overcome our spiritual enemies for eternity, then certainly he can carry us and hold us and protect us now. Romans 8, long been one of my very favorite passages. Uh, because it culminates after eight chapters of theology about who God is and the seriousness of sin and and the reality of death and destruction and the hope in salvation. Paul culminates Romans 8 with verses 38 and 39. It says, I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Even the most fearsome demonic elements fall under that blanket of any other created thing that cannot separate us from the love of God. And finally, that leads us to knowing our mission. That man had a longing to follow Christ. And that is a good and honorable thing. And if you are like me, there are many days when you say, Lord, I just want to be home. I want to contend against this flesh. I don't want to contend against this body that gets old. I don't want to contend against this attitude that keeps pulling me, this heart that keeps drawing me towards sin, that keeps leading me to do these things that I hate. I don't want to think about cancer. I don't want to think about wars. I don't want to think about contested elections and upheaval and unrest. I just want to go home. And in his grace and his mercy and his goodness, Christ says no. No. When every moment of the purpose of your life has been fulfilled, then I will call you home and not a moment before. And when the time is exactly right, I will come and I will undo all of the effects of sin. But every moment from that, from now until that time when he comes, he waits. He graciously waits and he gives his people the same mission that he gave that man. Go back to the lost and dying world that you came from and proclaim the power of the one who set you free from bondage. The Savior has not changed. The king has not changed. The mission has not changed. We have the king's message on the king's authority. So we are to be a church that is about the king's business. Let's pray. God, we are a people who are short-sighted and easily forget the power of the king that we serve. While we don't often contend against demonic forces and we might never see the demonic influence over thousands of pigs rushing dramatically into the sea, We see the impact of evil and sin all around us. Lord, we don't have to look far. Oftentimes it is in my own heart and life. And yet, you are the king with the power over all of these. You speak with the authority of God Himself, the one who created and sustains and upholds all things, the one who will bring all things to their God glorifying end. God, let that thought bring us comfort, let it bring us peace, let it bring us courage. In a time of instability and unrest and confusion, let us speak clearly the gospel of Jesus Christ that saves, that does not see men as our enemies, but as the lost to be won, as fellow sinners who, like we were, darkened and dying, spiritual cadavers facing an eternity of separation. But you brought life and light where there was death and darkness. God, give us that message. Put it on our lips. Convict us and compel us to preach that gospel that can save people. For you are good and you are holy and you are just and you are merciful and you have people in this city who you have called to yourself from eternity past. God, help us see the privilege in participating in that call. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.